and we're stating the obvious, let's approach things like this. When the church exists in a in a time of hostility, when the church exists in a time like this, when society is kind of open in its antagonism towards the Christian faith, when the church exists in a time like this, then the people of God, you and I, we face a temptation. I wonder if you see what it is. Let's put it like this. Let's uh, approach it like this. Let's say tomorrow, that atheist person that you know, that real militant atheist, confronts you, comes up to you once again, and you can tell they're not happy. You can tell that they're itching for a bit of a fight, and they're asking a few questions to you, and they're asking, what is it that you believe again? What is the temptation we face? The temptation many of us face is to, in a situation like that, emphasize certain parts of the gospel to the detriment of others. Isn't that right? Think of yourself in that situation with that atheist coming at you. What are we more likely to do? We're more likely to speak of the goodness of God. We're more likely to speak defensively about the love of God. But we're very unlikely to say anything about God's intolerance of sin and wickedness. Isn't that right? Or is it just me? Well, here's the problem. If we, if that is all that the church does, eventually what happens is that we diminish the significance of what Christ has done for us at the cross. Maybe you see what I mean. If we only, as a church, proclaim Jesus as Savior... Never say anything about what Jesus has saved us from. What are we doing? We're proclaiming half a truth. We're proclaiming an incomplete truth. We're preaching news, but we're maybe not preaching good news. Tonight, things get real very, very quickly, don't they? I mean... Come on, we tonight are going to look at one of the uh, most difficult and darkest uh, portions in all of the Old Testament. You saw it. You saw that it's full of judgment, isn't it? And it's full of rejection by God. But the hope that we have is surely this, that against such a black, bleak, dark background... The hope is that the light of the gospel and the light of the Lord Jesus Christ will shine all the more this evening from 1 Samuel chapter 15. So, here's the plan. Three headings. Three things we see this evening. First is this. We see here how seriously our God takes sin. How seriously God takes sin. Important to note that this is a transitionary portion of scripture that, that we're in. Transitionary portion of scripture. Up until now, what have we, if you've been here for the sermon series over the last number of weeks, what have we been looking at and thinking about? We've been thinking about the kingship of Saul. Isn't that right, King Saul? We've seen what a fool this guy has been. What a numpty this guy has been as ruler, as king. What a mess Saul's been making of it. Well, tonight, tonight that kingship of Saul comes to an end, doesn't it, in God's sight. But wouldn't you agree with me? It is the manner that his reign comes to an end that is so shocking. You know, I think so. Isn't it striking the way that this 
ends. Because did you see what God does here? What does God do? He commands Saul to kill the Amalekite people. Now, follow me. Listen. He doesn't just tell Saul to kill the Amalekite king. You would expect that, wouldn't you? You would expect, I'll kill him and, and, and kill maybe the troops. Kill the soldiers. That's not the, that's the command. Kill them all. Like, kill them all. Kill them all. Young and old. Kill their animals. Kill, kill everything. Now, we know, because we've read it, that Saul's not great here and he spares some. But still, come on. Don't we need to address this? Don't we? Isn't it a little bit shocking? I mean, you just think about what you've seen in the news this week. If you had your finger reasonably on the pulse this week, what happened at the beginning of the week? Uh, Miladic, Ravan Miladic, found guilty of war crimes. Specifically what? Genocide. Specifically ethnic cleansing. Is this not this? I mean, you, see, you hear the objection, don't you? From the atheist, from the, the skeptic. Is this not what your God is doing here with the Amalekites? Is this not ethnic cleansing? Isn't the God of the Bible a vicious God? Isn't he a cruel God? You see? How do we answer that? How do we think biblically here? Two things we've got to bear in mind. First is this. You must consider the history here. See, what happens in First Samuel chapter 15 is what is called Herem. H-E-R-E-M. Herem. That is the Hebrew word or the biblical word for holy war. Do you know what that tells us? This is Herem. This is not genocide. This is not ethnic cleansing. I mean, these Amalekites are not being destroyed because of their ethnicity, of their race. It's Herem. What is it? This is where God decrees that a people must die because they're guilty. They must die because they have committed a specific sin. And what's that sin? You picked it up in the reading earlier on. Did you in Deuteronomy? That's why we read Deuteronomy. Did you see what the Amalekites did? Listen. If you're not shocked by this, you should be. As the people of God fled Egypt in the Exodus, they fled Egypt. What did the Amalekites do? They pounced upon, launched an attack upon the people who lagged behind. Does that sound bad? Does it? Come on, think about it. See what they did? They butchered the freelest of the people of Israel. The kids who were lagging behind. And the elderly people who couldn't keep up. And those who were infirm. The Amalekites pounced on them, launched an attack on them, and, and wiped and killed them. And scripture makes it absolutely precise that this was done from a place of hatred towards the gods of Israel. So you begin to see, doesn't that help us tonight? It does, doesn't it? It's one thing for us to bemoan an innocent people destroyed. It's another thing. It's another thing when guilty people get what they deserve. Second thing we must bear in mind is, of course, the character of God. I, um, if you're here this morning, I was uh, boring people by talking about me loving um, 
building design programs on TV this morning. My wife uh, <laughs> does not like building design programs on TV. Uh, not a bit of it. We're very different in this regard. And she prefers fluffy American television and, uh, you know, sort of fluffy sort of legal dramas and that sort of thing. And so I was destroyed when I saw that uh, The Good Wife uh, had appeared on Netflix. And so she loves it and obsessed with it. I, I cannot bear it. And I tried, I tried, but it's so formulaic. And I watched a couple and both were the same. You know what they revolved around? The theme was the same. It was about the identity of the judge. You know, so the legal team, you can imagine it, right? The legal team are, oh no, we've been assigned Judge A to our case and he's harsh and he's horrible. Or, next episode, hooray, Judge B has been assigned to our case and he's a good and a fair judge. Now, see that? Should that not be borne in mind? In First Samuel chapter 15. Because friends, who is it? That is presiding over this judgment over the Amalekites. Who is it? It is God. It is God. And what do we know about God? What does scripture reveal about God? He is the God of righteousness. He is the God of holiness, of mercy, the God of truth. What do we know about God? We know that he is in Entirely intolerant of injustice. Intolerant of unfairness. God can only promote good and he can only destroy evil. And I want you to think about this. Please think about this. When does the attack, this destruction of the Amalekites happen? When does it happen? Does it happen when they attack the people of Egypt, the, the people fleeing Egypt? Did it happen then? It didn't, did it? It happens centuries and centuries later. Do you see what that tells you? What you've got here is not just, not just a decree of holy perfection over a deserving people. What do you have here? What has God done? God has even given them 300 years to repent of their sin. Now maybe if you're a Christian, maybe you're still struggling with this decree. It's not easy, is it? Are you still struggling with it? If so, can I suggest maybe it's a couple of things. Maybe one, it's that we're too comfortable in our Christianity. I'm telling you, you see the persecuted church tonight, they don't have such a problem with God destroying or seeking justice over his enemies. Maybe we're too comfortable. Or maybe it's just this, that we have a deficient view of the holiness and purity and righteousness of God. You see all of this? All of it is leading to one question that I, I, I need to ask you. Why? Why? I mean, it's difficult, but why does God record this in the Bible? Why, why does he, why is this detail, this event, this destruction, why does God re- reveal it? Why does he record it? Yes, it reveals something about his goodness, but is there not another reason? Why does he record such a destruction? Do you see what he's doing? He is reminding you this evening of what lies ahead in human history. Isn't that it? He's reminding you tonight that such is his holiness, such is his splendor, that one day God is going to act 
injustice over all of the sin and all of the evil and all of the wickedness. This is here as a reminder of what lies ahead, of what is coming to humanity. And so surely, if nothing else tonight, if you are a Christian, you read 1 Samuel 15, you remember the justice of God. And what should that do? It should prompt you to greater urgency in evangelism. We have to tell people where they, how they can be saved. Because what do you know if you're a Christian? It is appointed for man to die once and then judgment. We see here how seriously God takes sin. Second thing we see here tonight is how seriously God takes disobedience. How seriously God takes disobedience to his word. I think here is where we hit the main point of First Samuel chapter 15. Because think about what's happened here. God has commanded Saul to do what? To wipe out the Amalekite people. Does he do it? Does he do it? No, he doesn't do it. And so we're, we're, we, it's difficult to believe, isn't it? After all that Saul has experienced... And all the mistakes he's, he's made, it's difficult to believe that he would flagrantly disobey God. So we have to ask Saul, why would you not obey fully? Again, I think we've got two reasons why Saul disobeys God. Here's the first. Saul disobeys because he is much more concerned for himself than he is for God. He's concerned for his own glory, his own self, and not for God. So you do this with me. Look at verse 9, please. Who is it he spares? So God tells him, kill the Amalekites. Who's he spare? First of all, who have you got? You've got, he spares Agag the king. Can you, can you almost hear his thought process? He's thinking, right, I'll, 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 I'll kill the rest of them. But this is the king. I'm going to spear Agag because he might come in a bit useful later on. You see it? Now who else, who else does he spare? What else does he spare? He spares the best of the animals. Again, can you almost hear Saul? He's looking at saying, oh, that, that, these beasts look good. Either they look tasty, or maybe they'll be good for breeding. I'm not going to kill these things. I'm going to keep them for, keep them for myself. Do you see the point? Like Saul is willing to obey God, but up until a point, he's willing to obey God only if it's in Saul's best interests. And maybe, maybe you doubt that. Do you doubt that? Have a look at verse 12. What does he do? After this attack, does he build an altar? Does he praise the Lord? What does he do? He builds a monument to himself. He is concerned for his own glory. Second reason. Why does he disobey? Because here is a man who underestimates the significance of disobeying God. He underestimates the significance of disobeying God. Were you here when we uh, baptized Gabriel and Sudreya's little baby boy? Were you here that morning? I love a baptism. I love that morning. Do you remember what we did as a congregation? We looked at Ruth chapter 2. We looked at the biblical Boaz. Hopefully you remember Gabriel. Yes. Good. And what we looked at were the very first words that Boaz said in Holy Scripture. I wonder if anyone remembers Boaz's first words. Lovely first words. 
So he goes into the field, he sees his servants, and he looks over at the servants, and he says, the Lord be, the Lord be with you. First words, beautiful, lovely. Isn't this true? That Saul's first words after this attack, so important for us to get. Have a look at them in verse 13. You got this, you got the scene to your friends that, that he's killed all of these people. And Samuel, the prophet of the Lord, comes to him. What does Saul say? He says, Hi, Samuel. And then says, I have performed the commandment of God. <laughs> and, and we're looking at Saul, right? We're looking at Saul. We're, you liar. He's saying, I've, I've done it. You know, God told me to kill the Amalekites. I've done you liar. We know he's not done it. He's lying, isn't he? But maybe you see it from Saul's point of view, do you? Do you see how he's thinking? He's thinking, well, I kind of have. You know, God told me to kill the Amalekites and I killed, you know, come on, throw me a bone. I've killed most of them. I kind of done what God... Do you see the problem? He's underestimating how significant in it, how serious it is to obey properly, obey, obey every word from God. You see? Underestimating it. And surely that is confirmed for us in verse 23. This is the center of it all. Look at verse 23. Look what God does. Look what he equates this disobedience with. Look at it. God says to Saul, this disobedience... It's as the sin of. Now get the wording, please, friends. It's as the sin of. Now divination. There's your first one. But carry on. You see, your, your disobedience it is as iniquity. What's the next word? And? What's the next word? You see? This disobedience, it's as though it's idolatry. Do you hear what God's saying to Saul? See, you're, you're, you think this is okay? To kind of half do it? You think this is alright? God's saying this is tantamount to paganism. God is saying you think this is okay? You might as well have gone away and worshipped Baal or Ashtaroth. You might as well have gone and worshipped an other God. Do you see the message of this chapter to us? It is surely this. That God places true priority on his people obeying fully his holy word and if you're a Christian in here tonight doesn't that speak to you don't we need to sit up here don't we need to think this through isn't it true that at this juncture in our lives many of us as Christians are not taking our sanctification as seriously as we should isn't that it we are rejoicing tonight, uh, the covenant of grace. We're rejoicing in what Christ has done for us. But are we really focusing on obedience to God's word? Is that the case for you tonight as a Christian? Obeying God, seeking to put sin to death in your life. Is that where you're at? You praying about it on a daily basis? Are you active in the power of the Holy Spirit trying to kill sin? Is that you? John Murray says this, I love this. John Murray says, the believer is not redeemed by obedience, but the believer is redeemed to obedience. To obedience. We are to live lives killing sin, obeying God's word. But if this is applicable to the Christian, 
then what is doubly true is that there is a word here for the person who is not believing. If that's you, if you're not a Christian tonight, can I just ask you this? What is the cons- What is the outcome for Saul? He disobeys God, and what happens? He is rejected by God as king. Rejected because of disobedience. So if you are not a Christian, please hear this. You have a command in your hands by God. There is a command that God has given you, and it is this. Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. And if you're not a Christian, surely you look at 1 Samuel 15, and you see the consequences of not obeying that. What will happen to you? If you do not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will face an eternal rejection by a holy and a just God. If you do not believe in Jesus, there is hell. We see how seriously God takes sin. We see how seriously he takes disobedience. But we end, third thing, we see how seriously God takes his people's salvation this morning we looked at covenant theology a little bit we said or we saw the implication that we should love the old testament as the people of god right now one reason that we should love the old testament is the myriad of ways that it points us to jesus it's not why we love the old testament it just throws us to the cross it pushes us to Jesus. Now, I love 1 Samuel 15. Because here before us, we have not one, not two, but three prefigures of the work that Christ has done on our behalf. That's something, isn't it? Isn't it something? Before us, three deliberate divine pointers to Calvary Hill. All I want to do in closing is just mention them to you. You'll see them, you'll see them. Because first of all, do we not see Christ's work in King Saul? Because, answer me this, what role does Saul play in this portion of scripture? He's the agent of judgment. Isn't that right at the start of this chapter? Saul is the one chosen by God to enact this prophecy against the Malachites. He's the agent of judgment. And I need to say to you, isn't that the role that Christ is going to play in the final reckoning of things in the last day? He shall be the agent of judgment. Acts chapter 17, what does it say? It says, God has set a day when he will judge the world with justice. How? By the man he has appointed. And who's the man? What does Jesus say? The Father has given into my hands all judgment. You understand that? The final day Christ shall return. He shall sit in the judge's seat. Christ judging all of the earth. And if you are a believer, surely, surely you praise God for that. Because what does it mean for us? What does it mean? We have got nothing to fear. The one who is judge on that last day, he loves you. 
He is your friend. He is your shepherd. He is the one you're united to by faith. We have nothing to fear in Christ Jesus. So King Saul, isn't it also true? Christ is prefigured here by the new king spoken of in 1 Samuel 15. Do this with me. Look at verse 28 with me, please. Verse 28. So you've got, I'm sure you saw it, all of this false regret from Saul after he's been rejected. You know, there's all this this pattern is what we'd call it, isn't it? It's all this false repentance and false remorse. And look, he tears Samuel's robe and what does God say? You see it? The torn, the kingdom of Israel from Saul and given it to a neighbor. Now we've looked at this, haven't we? Who's the neighbor? We immediately understand he's talking of David, the one who's going to come in the next chapter. The kingdom has been taken straight out of Saul's hands, given it to David, but you know as well as I do it points forward, doesn't it? To the eternal king, the Lord Jesus Christ. My question is, though, what is so special about Christ? What is so special about this next king? Do you see what Samuel says? This king, the Lord Jesus, will be a better king. And surely you see it's like that from God's point of view. After all your disobedience, and after all my disobedience, and after all Saul's disobedience, and David's disobedience, and, and the list goes on, who is Christ? He is a better king. He's an obedient king. He's the one, isn't he? He's the one who will obey unceasingly, obey perfectly. Here is a king, unlike Saul, who will obey even to the point of death and death on a cross. A better king. And then the last. I said three, didn't I? Three prefigures of Jesus. I ask you this. Is Christ not also pointed to in the work of Samuel? Because let's cut to the chase. Have you ever, friends, have you ever (laughs) come across a more brutal end to a chapter of Scripture in your life? I mean, I'm kind of glad my boy's not here tonight at church in a way, because this is gory. Do you see what Samuel does? Samuel takes Agag. He does what Saul wouldn't do, doesn't he? He takes Agag, the Amalekite king, by the scruff of the neck, brings him, I won't describe it too too much, he brings him forth, and he, I'll use the biblical language, he hacks him to death. It's what he does. Out with the sword, out with the axe, and he kills the Amalekite king. But in all seriousness, is that not what Christ has done? Has the Lord Jesus not defeated God's great enemy? Has the Lord Jesus Christ not defeated the enemy of God's people, the one who sought to attack God's people? Has Christ not destroyed Satan? And we end just asking, how has he done it? Because you know as well as I do, the Lord Jesus Christ did not use weapons like this, did not use a sword, did not use an axe, did not hack down the great enemy of God. What did he do? Consider it. To secure your salvation, Christian friend. Christ Jesus endured harem. That the Father 
went to holy war against his son. That the only way to secure your eternal salvation is to do what? Is to mete out and pour out this sort of judgment on his own son. To take the judgment that was due to you and pour it out on the head of the Lord Jesus. Holy war in that blackness at Calvary. May it be that you see in 1 Samuel 15, not only how much God must love you to do that, but may you see in 1 Samuel 15 just what it is that Christ Jesus has saved you from. Let's pray. Lord our God, this is a a hard and difficult portion of scripture with truths we have to wrestle with as your people. But we thank you that there is great security for us in your character. We know that you are a God of holiness and justice and righteousness. We know eh, that these Amalekites were sinners, that your word tells us that in multiple occasions in this text, that they had sinned against you, that they had offended, they had committed evil. And Lord God, we praise you that even in the darkest of portions of Scripture, that the light of the gospel does shine. And we see, Lord God, in the the judgment upon sin, what it is that Christ has faced uh, for us and on our behalf. And so we can as your people, but tonight praise you. We praise you for the cross. We praise you, Lord Jesus, for enduring, enduring what we will never have to endure, for being an obedient king, even to death. We praise you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.